Hey legends, I'm Eliza Lee and you're listening to The Making of an Incredible MD, the podcast for aspiring medical professionals. Each week, we'll bring in a current MD student and a practicing physician to talk about an important topic in the medical field. From the effects of climate change to the influence of social media on our health, we'll uncover a maze of different perspectives and end each episode with an ethical dilemma for us all to consider. Stay tuned as we literally hear the making of these incredible MDs unfold right before our ears. Today we're joined by Gabby Smith, one of our hallowed GAMSAT tutors, mission alumni, and just overall top-notch human being. Gabby is an MD1 student and member of the Outlook Rural Health Club at the University of Melbourne. And for anyone who's been in Gabby's classes, you'll know she is an absolute advocate for improving rural health services, having grown up in a small town called Broken Hill herself. So there is really no better person to have on this episode about rural health inequalities than Gab. I acknowledge the traditional custodians and rightful owners of the land on which we are all listening today. Um, And the land in which I am on recording this is the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations. I recognise their traditional and continuing connection to the land, water and community. And I pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for starting our podcast out with an acknowledgement of country, Gabby. I think everyone who has met you can attest to the level of care and thoughtfulness that you have in everything that you do. And I love that you bring that to this topic as well. So I'll let you introduce yourself, Gab, to sort of how you came to where you are now and sort of your experience with sort of the health inequalities in the minority groups, especially sort of Indigenous and rural healthcare. Uh, Yep. So my name is Gab. Um, I'm a first year medical student at Melbourne University. I did an undergraduate degree in biomedical science at Monash, but I grew up largely in rural New South Wales, all over the shop really. Um, But Griffith and Broken Hill were probably the major towns I stayed in. And from that experience, I always had a strong sort of passion for rural health and an interest to learn more. And in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and culture, I learned a lot through my school because it was just part of our normal classes at the school I went to, which I was luckily enough to be exposed to. But also coming to Melbourne, learning more about how much people just don't know about it has sort of sparked this further interest in me to be more of an advocate for First Nations health and for First Nations people in general. And also, luckily enough, Melbourne University um, incorporates a lot of First Nations health in their course well at a first year level anyway so I've been really enjoying that. So let's just start with spelling out the hard facts and unpack them one by one. What are the clear health disparities in our Australian healthcare system and who exactly do they affect? Okay so this is a huge question and I was trying to think about what the best way to tackle this is and I think it's really an easy way to tackle this is focusing on Close the Gap campaign. So if you haven't heard of this, this was launched in 2007 by the federal government and it had an original seven targets to close the gap. And those were life expectancy, child mortality, early childhood education, reading, writing and numeracy, graduating year 12, employment and school attendance. So these are probably the biggest disparities in general 
Um, and obviously the ones that are really big for health there are life expectancy and child mortality. However, I would say that all aspects of disadvantage and discrimination influence one's overall well-being. Um, so all of them are really important. And I also think that that list isn't exhaustive either. There is lots that isn't mentioned. And since 2007, there has been a huge evolution anyway. But one thing that really stands out to me, I think, is the fact that Indigenous people tend to experience 2.3 times higher rates of burden of disease than non-Indigenous Australians, mm. which I just think that is huge. Um, and that is probably the biggest disparity that there is. And that is a statistic from 2020, um, oh. not 2007. So that is, yeah, that's pretty big in my books, I think. And sort of talking to that statistic and then just putting in context and where we are now in the COVID crisis, obviously we've been somewhat announced to, to, by the media that First Nations people are more vulnerable and at risk. Can you just talk to more to why that is? Yeah, so I think it's really complicated and I think it's important to note that often these disparities aren't linked to genetics. It's rather mm. epidemiological. So it's mm. more focused on social determinants, bias, justice, systemic barriers, colonisation and culture. And a large part of that, I think as well, from my reading and my understanding is colonization being a huge factor. So in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, their spiritual well-being is very much linked to their overall well-being. And mm. when colonization occurred, they were stripped from their land and stripped from a lot of their spiritual practices, which had a large impact on their health. But also when colonization happened, the uh, white settlers brought with them lots of diseases, which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hadn't experienced before. And I read an article the other day about how rural Aboriginal communities have tackled um, the COVID-19 pandemic and it's actually incredible. So they had been doing so much great work before uh, the Australian government had even noticed what happened. Aboriginal communities were liaising with each other throughout the country and they also liaised with um, Indigenous communities in Canada who had sort of experienced the COVID-19 spike before we did to sort of share health education resources with each other and plan a proactive response to this virus and put in place lockdowns before the Australian state and federal governments had even imposed any lockdowns. So that, I think, goes to show that they are more at risk for lots of different reasons that are both, uh, you know, that are epidemiological and because the virus affects everyone. But also it goes to show how much they are so proactive in their own response. A quote from that article that I think deserves to be read is that we have been fighting infectious diseases since the first ships arrived. If anyone is going to know how to care for our mob during a pandemic response, it's going to be us. And that just shows that, yeah, they are more at risk, but they can handle it. And they've been doing this since day one um, of colonization um, since the first boat arrived. So I think that's important to outline. Yeah, no, absolutely. From, I guess, a medical student perspective, I know you're on first year and maybe not so much gone on a clinical placement because of the current situation yet, um, but definitely have lived in the rural settings, definitely seen how the different presentations in hospital look between rural and, and possibly metro. What might be an example of one of those diseases that maybe Western colonisation has brought in and that has really traumatised and wiped out a First Nations community that we don't really know about and is common for us to just say, oh, it exists for us, but is it something that is really devastating for the First Nations community? Yeah, so I am still learning about this, obviously, um, but I think one of the biggest things that sort of stuck in my mind was the fact that when colonisation came, so did the introduction of lots of different foods that weren't consumed prior. Mm -hmm. So lots of processed foods, high in sugar foods, high in fat foods, 
that Indigenous people weren't consuming before. So with this comes lots of chronic conditions such as diabetes, high cholesterol, um, and that sort of thing, which has lots of flow-on effects to other diseases, which is probably um, sort of leading to more of that reason for high burden of disease so that was a big thing i think as well yeah that's that's probably the biggest thing that i've seen um but yeah obviously i haven't had that much um, clinical experience let yet thanks covid for that one um but uh i'm sure that we'll learn more about that but that's one thing that's really stood out in my learnings in md1 um and i know you sort of touched on it with going back to the root cause of that colonialism why do these disparities exist and what can we do individually and or systemically that can really make progress? Okay, so I think there's a lots of things that can be done individually and systemically. Individually, as myself, not being an Indigenous person, I think the best thing non-Indigenous people can do is just educate ourselves. Read as much as you can about First Nations health, especially if you want to get into the um, health field in any sort of level. And I think as well that Western health or Western medicine can really learn a lot from First Nations health as well, because it has a large focus on like person-centered care. So I think there's a lot that Western medicine can take from that, as well as learning a lot about First Nations culture as well. They have such a rich and interesting culture that I always talk about and I love. And like even their art is just so beautiful that I think there's no loss in reading more about it. And that sort of education will also help us as individuals be more culturally safe and actively anti-racist as well to sort of help close that gap. But I think the biggest thing in systemic change is I sort of already touched on it from um, that COVID-19 article that I was referring to, but the idea of um, self-determination and sovereignty is quite big in um, the First Nations health realm. So it's just basically the right for Aboriginal people to have a say about their own lives, bodies and country which is pretty simple when it's put that way. But when colonisation occurred, they were stripped of that. And it's taking a really long time to give that back, which it really shouldn't. But just recently, literally last week, um, Scott Morrison um, addressed uh, the Cabinet meeting with, with new updates to the Close the Cap campaign. And there was lots of talk about sort of Torres Strait, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community control organisations at the centre for closing the gap, which I think is really important and really great, sort of an, a really great step in the right direction there. Um, and actually in the March 2020 update for the Close the Gap campaign report, in the first like couple of paragraphs, they talk about how maybe if Aboriginal voices were listened to at the beginning, we wouldn't need an 11th report, which I think is so important. (laughs) Yeah, like it's stupid that all these rules have been made for them and Mm -hmm. they just sort of haven't been included. But now I do think that's changing a little bit. The new update is focusing on, you know, four main determinants of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, which are all very sort of strength-based approach. So things like self-determination and leadership, Indigenous beliefs and knowledge, cultural expression and continuity and connection to country. So they're shifting that focus away from being more about filling a gap and that there's a problem to more of a strength-based approach, Mm. which is supposed to sort of empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have that voice, which I think this is the right way to go. And I think we are moving in that way even though it's taken us a really long time, we are going that way. And I'm interested to hear more about what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have to say about this update. Mm. Well, actually, my next question off that was like, what progress have we already made? And it looks like the summation of that was a little too little, a little too slow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) 
Um, I guess like what are the opportunities that exist for Indigenous people to become healthcare professionals then and be able to re really lead that conversation of their own community's health? Um, and how does that sort of measure up to the opportunities that are available for non-Indigenous people living in Australia? First of all, going to university at any level, um, you sort of need to have a bit of privilege to be able to do that um, because it is expensive, time consuming. And if you don't live in a major cities or places near a university that provide the course you need, you have to, con it's a large investment um, to move and go to university. So I think that first um, needs to be touched on. But also each university sort of has their own schemes, whether it be a scholarship or bursary based sort of program to try and increase the amount of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people studying a tertiary degree. And the same thing goes for medicine. So each university has their own sort of thing. And each university, some universities are better at it than others, so to speak. <laughs> I think Deakin has done some great work in that field and Melbourne University is great at it as well. But in saying that, although Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations make up 3% of our population, only 0.5% of doctors registered to practice in Australia identify as Indigenous. Mm. So there's obviously still a problem there and it needs to be addressed. I have a couple of Indigenous friends that haven't really gone down the um, medical health realm, but have gone through uh, the arts realm. Um, and I've got one friend who's becoming very successful in the journalism field, I believe. And she has taken up those opportunities of scholarships and bursaries, but she's very much an advocate for more needs to be done. And there's mm. just not enough because often, you know, these bursaries are fine. There's you know, here's a bit of money to get you started, but that there really needs to be ongoing support, especially if moving from a rural area because it's expensive and it's hard living away from home. Like I found it difficult and I'm not an, an Indigenous person where that connection to land is part of who I am. So, you know, if I found it difficult, I can't even imagine how difficult it can be for them. So I think yeah, some things have helped, but more needs to be done. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently about Indigenous health. Um, and one of them that I listened to the other day, I think it was in, called Indigenous Health Med Talk. Um, and it spoke about this new evolution of cross-cultural education in medicine, which I think is really interesting. And it's basically combining the traditional healing practices of Aboriginal people with Western medicine. So obviously those two things are very different. Um, and they can't be compared. But um, I think this cross-cultural education is really key to enhancing engagement um, with Aboriginal communities with medicine and sort of enhancing health through that way. Because I think a large barrier is that traditional Aboriginal medicine is very different to Western medicine. And it's hard to sort of combine the two. But now there are a few people that are traditional healers in Aboriginal uh, medicine that have become sort of uh, Western medical doctors, so to speak. So I think like combining those two is an incredible way um, to sort of increase increase the opportunities there and dissolve those inequalities. And if more could be invested into that area, I think that would be great. But also uh, the introduction of more Aboriginal healthcare centres um, in lots of different communities, I think has been really key. The Aboriginal health focused professions as well, such as cultural mentors and Aboriginal liaison officers, I think are really important to invest more money into those areas, to allow more opportunities in those areas, because I think they're not only really important for community and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but those cultural mentors are key in all 
uh, sort of health practices to allow that cultural safety to be um, a key part of the practice. Definitely love that um, consideration of cultural safety. And I'm going with that, I guess the last part of every episode, as you know, um, is an ethical dilemma that we put um, you in and we just love hearing through the thought process that you have. So the situation today is how would you approach resource allocation in healthcare if one of your patients is more disadvantaged, for instance, maybe have less money, less health literacy, meaning the other patient is more likely to be able to afford or engage in your treatment? So let's just say, for instance, maybe you're a private practitioner here and, and you're able to control the resource allocation. Okay, this is a big juicy one. Um, and if this was an interview station, I'd be freaking out because there's so much to cover in six minutes. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I'd figure it out. So breaking that up, I think the main priority here, if I was the health practitioner, is I just want to make sure that I could spend considerable time with someone, especially if they didn't have as much health literacy and, you know, depending on what it is they were getting treatment for and whatnot. It's, I think it's just really important to spend enough time with them to provide as much information about um, what's going on with them as I possibly could to sort of give them that information they need to make a choice. I think it's important to remember no matter how high your health literacy might be as a patient and going in and getting told, you know, you need treatment for something, you're not going to remember everything the doctor says. You're not going to understand everything the doctor says. You'll probably only remember the last thing and the first thing and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, spend enough time to provide them with the information, give them some sort of, you know, take home information as well so they can do their own research in their own time in the comfort of their own home maybe allow them to have a family member in as well, I think would be great to sort of consume that information that they may have missed. But then that's sort of addressing the health literacy side of things. Um, But the other thing, you know, the money, we're lucky in Australia that there are schemes like Medicare and um, low income healthcare cards, which can help, but it doesn't cover everything. So sort of getting them on some sort of treatment payment plan, if possible, getting them in touch with um, financial support services as well to help sort of take that burden off so that they're um, their decision isn't swayed by their bank account, so to speak, because that should never happen anywhere, let alone mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, and just basically, um, yeah, giving them, taking that stress off. Um, and then in terms of the last part, less invested in their healthcare due to their culture. Um, I think it's really important here to realise uh, your own personal biases Um, As a healthcare professional, usually you think treatment is best and this treatment you're prescribing needs to happen and it is the only option. But Mm -hmm. I think it's important to sort of make sure we listen to the patient and their priorities and maybe, you know, this treatment just doesn't align with their own quality of life. And maybe, for instance, if it's something like kidney dialysis and they have to travel a long distance number of times a week to get it done, maybe that's just not part of their quality of life. So it's really important that you consider that and try to understand that. And you can give all the information you like to the patient about what their options are, but ultimately the decision comes down to them. Your job as a healthcare professional is to just provide them with enough information to empower them to make their own informed choice because, you know, giving them the autonomy to do so is like the the crux of human rights and ethics in regards to medicine as well. So I think that's the most important thing. And also realizing if you're out of your depth and you need to bring someone else in. So for example, if it was an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander patient, I'd probably try to get in an Aboriginal liaison officer or healthcare worker in to sort of help 
advise the treatment, you know, liaise with the patient and myself. Just focusing on advocacy and doing everything you can to make both patients, whether the patient is, you know, privileged or not, um, giving them both that health equality that we are lucky to have mostly in Australia. I always learn something new when talking to Gabby and today was definitely no exception. What I took away was just how little I know about the problems we face in our own backyard. I hope you guys enjoyed the sharing from today and took something away too. There's still heaps of sharing of perspective to come, so I'll see you on the next episode. 